Hello, spyhards, diehards. Cam the Provocateur here. And if there's one thing James Bond taught us, it's that style matters. Well, we are excited to announce that you can now buy official Spyhards merchandise. Head on over to Redbubble, search Spyhards, and you can find t-shirts, iPhone cases, stickers, hats, all sorts of stuff. Most important of all, though, the official What Does Vargas Do t-shirt. Designed by Shayla, who appeared on our Brosnan Roundtable episode, this shirt depicts Vargas, the henchman from Thunderball, gazing into the mirror and asking the eternal question that Largo wondered, what does Vargas do? So again, head on over to Redbubble, search Spyhards, and grab some merch that's going to make you look cool whether you're walking to a casino or snowboarding to the Beach Boys. But now, to your regularly scheduled episode. Cue the intro. Hello and welcome to Spy Hards Podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Scott, we love it. We love it. We love it. We love it! (laughs) Or do we? Mm. That is the question we will answer today when we talk about what film, Cam? We are tackling the 1985 spy comedy Gotcha, starring Anthony Edwards. This is a movie that a lot of people have wanted us to cover for a while. It's one that when we started this show, um, we would be posting about doing Bond or what have you, and people would be asking, when are you going to do Gotcha? So we are doing Gotcha. So who needs Goldfinger? Who needs Casino Royale? We have Gotcha! That's right. Yeah. Uh, this movie has a real cult following. We did the Avengers fairly recently, so that movie did as well. So who knows? Like Maybe we have a uh, future career in just um, really catering to a lot of these cult fandoms. Also this week, we sat down with the director of the film, Jeff Kanu, who you know talked us through the creation of the film and working with Anthony Edwards. It was actually his second time working with him because he actually worked with him before on Revenge of the Nerds. It's a, another cult classic film as well. This was a uh, immediate follow-up just one year afterwards, so the um, creative partnership of Kanu and Edwards was flourishing. Mm. Uh, well, I suppose we'd better get into it, but uh, before we tackle Gotcha, I think it's time to give everyone what they want, and that's the letterbox.com synopsis, and it has a, has a great opening. Gotcha. His first time, maybe his last. <laughs> God bless the 80s. A student on a trip to France is tricked into smuggling secrets across the Iron Curtain by a sexy spy. Mm, that old chestnut. <laughs> yeah, I've been caught by that one before. Yeah. <laughs> it was you, though, weirdly. <laughs> What's that all about? <laughs> <laughs> you did get me, I suppose, yeah. I was gotchered. Um, well, okay, I, we, we did kind of set it up at the start, but neither of us had seen this film before. Obviously, people had asked us about it, but I, I, I had no knowledge about the film. Cam, are you the same? No, it was one that when people started bringing it up on Twitter, I actually looked it up on IMDb because I had never really come across it. It feels like the kind of movie 
that probably would have played on TV a fair amount uh, for a certain generation. And it just never crossed my path for sure. I mean, Jeff Kanu, the director, uh, he did Revenge of the Nerds, as we said. He also did Troop Beverly Hills with Shelley Long. Those two movies did cross my path a lot on TV. But Gotcha, I, I don't think my local affiliates uh, aired that one too often. And it, for me, it feels very Americanized. So I don't really think it even played over here. But I suppose you could probably answer that question for me, Cam. So could you give us the backstory of Gotcha? The backstory on this one is fairly vague online. If you start doing the research and digging around, uh, not a lot of details. Uh, the Wikipedia page is almost completely blank in terms of the production. So the thing is, I don't feel too bad about that because, as you said, we have an interview with Jeff Kanu who's going to come on the show later this week and take you on a behind-the-scenes tour of actually what was going on with the making of Gotcha. So that is far superior to, to anything I can really give you at this moment. So check out that interview for anyone who wants to know more about how this film really came to be. But there are a couple things that jump out. Um, so the movie had a story credit by Paul G. Hensler, who when I looked him up, he'd only done one movie in 1982 called Don't Cry, It's Only Thunder, which I don't know what that is. Uh, he didn't have many writing credits over the course of his career. It's like three or four credits like total. But this man has a pretty interesting backstory. He was a Vietnam veteran who, when you dig into his background, he was the military advisor on Apocalypse Now, more American graffiti. Um, so like that was kind of his thing for a while. He also was the location manager in the Phil for the Philippines for the movie An Officer and a Gentleman. So like those are some really big hits, very influential films. So this guy's had a very short career. His IMDb page is pretty blank, but he did have this like kind of this burst in the 80s of uh, and I guess late 70s working on some pretty notable projects. To be fair, that doesn't really surprise me because I had never heard of this film. So having someone who sort of popped in and popped out, that sounds about right. Yeah. So he had a story. So I, I'm just wondering if this was just an idea that got fleshed out because the final screenplay credit went to a guy named Dan Gordon. He hadn't done a lot really either. Um, he'd done a movie called Tank starring James Garner. And I've never, again, really heard of that one. He also did a bunch of TV. But Gotcha was very, very early in his career one of his first projects. And he would go on to have um, some pretty notable credits. He would go on to do Passenger 57 with Wesley Snipes. He did Surf Ninjas, which I think a certain generation will remember coming out in the wake of like the Ninja Turtles films and things like that. Uh, it starred Ernie Reyes Jr. who played Kino in Ninja Turtles 2. And uh, it also had Rob Schneider as one of the stars. So check that one out. We were talking about cult, fan, uh, cult fandom earlier. That one might apply. Uh, he also worked on The Hurricane, the Denzel Washington film, and most recently, uh, Rambo Last Blood. I have nothing nice to say about that movie, but he's working in a franchise that I can appreciate. <laughs> yeah, you did just recently take a trip up to one of the uh, the Rambo locations to have a bunch of photos by yourself, which was both fantastic and sad at the same time. <laughs> That's right. My sister and I, she's not in the photos. There's other photos with her in them that I took, but... We traveled up to Hope, B.C., which is the small town where they shot First Blood, the 1982 um, original Rambo film. And we went to a lot of these shooting locations. It was amazing. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the director, Jeff Kanu, he was fairly new. He had done a handful of movies that hadn't, like, fully crossed the line yet to kind of establish him. He'd done some things like uh, Natural Enemies was one of the movies. But... Most notably, he'd done a film as an editor 
Ordinary People, which is Robert Redford's directorial debut. It wins Best Picture Oscar that year at the Oscars. Uh, it was a pretty big deal. So he kind of had this side gig just doing, you know, editor work, which we talk about more with him in the interview, but kind of an interesting credit to kind of go from your early films, which he was editing his own work. So it's not like he didn't have a background as an editor, but to go from his own work to jump over to do Ordinary People and then to come back to his own films, just really interesting. And the story he has about doing that, I think is genuinely uh, interesting and worth checking out for people this week. To be fair, to be fair, he had a bit of a strange trajectory before that because he actually had a, a bit of a Bond connection. Yes, he did. Yes, he did, Scott. And that is one of the bits of gold you can find on in that interview that I think is well worth checking out. Yeah, there's nothing mentioned on his IMDb, but he's been involved in a few of them and you'd be surprised just how he was involved. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, check it out on Friday, folks. Yeah, so he had done another movie called Eddie Macon's Run, which with uh, Hal Holbrook that got a bit of attention, but it was in 1984, Revenge of the Nerds was like a big deal. That comes out in the wake of, you know, Animal House and a lot of those campus comedies. And it's become pretty iconic. One of the best remembered of that sort of generation of, you know, um, campus comedies or sex comedies. Um, Scott, you watched it actually uh, before we uh, did the interview, correct? Uh, That is correct, unfortunately. Yes, I did. Yeah, I was a fan of that movie back in the day. It aired on TV all the time. I watched all four of them because there was four entries in the franchise. Um, Two theatrical, two TV movies. But uh, yep, they were a thing that I definitely watched. If you'd have told me the first one was a TV movie, I would have believed you. Uh, I think this is one of those films that you had to have watched around the time because watching it in 2021 for the first time, it's a problematic film. Yeah, I I know the part you're talking about. It's pretty well-worn territory at this point to yeah, point that out because a lot of critics have brought that up over the years for sure. Um, I guess I'll shut up then. Thanks, <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> you bring nothing new to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. As for the cast, reteaming with Anthony Edwards made, uh, made sense. He'd worked with him in Revenge of the Nerds. And Linda Fiorentino, who's the other star in this movie, her 1985 is incredible. So she kicks it off with a movie called Vision Quest, which was like a real staple at the time. It was a romantic uh, sort of drama at the, you know, that was very popular in the 80s. The same year she does Vision Quest, Gotcha, Martin Scorsese's After Hours, as well as the Madonna videos for Crazy For You and Gambler. Like, talk about a 1985. Talk about a year, like a coming out year for an actor. Yeah, I'm just looking at her IMDb credits now. It's also her first year. Yeah. That's like scoring a touchdown on your first over. I don't know. I don't watch sports. But uh, yeah, she did pretty well for herself. It's like when you're curling and the puck gets closer to the circle. <laughs> that's a that's a shout out to another podcast, The Franchise, which has made that reference many times. It always makes me laugh. But <laughs> uh, So yeah, like talk about a big year for, for an actress. And I mean, Linda Fiorentino, we'll talk more about her performance in this movie, but she's someone who... It's pretty formidable talent. Formidable is, is, is probably the word. I would urge everyone. I mean, obviously, she pops up again in Men in Black, mm-hmm. which is one of our earliest episodes. But there's an interview on YouTube I'd urge you to take a look at. I, I, it, it's one of the late night shows. I don't know them. I'm not American. Oh, it's, it's Letterman. David Letterman. Okay, it's Letterman. And it's, it's a pretty stilted interview. Like it's, it's rough. You can tell that he's trying and she is putting up some sort of offense. I don't want to say she's difficult because I think she, you know, she, she says some stuff in the interview that's quite 
you know, nowadays, it's it's like a Me Too type of thing. It, it, but in those days, they just, you know, labeled her as difficult. Yeah, like, I think Linda Fiorentino is a, a very, like, tough woman and has a very dark sense of humor. And I don't think people got it. I genuinely don't. Nah. I watch that interview and I'm like, she's not suffering fools. Like, he's trying to clown around her and she's just like, okay, like, whatever. And she has some lines that I can tell she's legitimately trying to be funny. And it's just not communicating to the audience or to Letterman. Like they look kind of just thrown, but I found it very funny. Maybe, maybe Linda and I have the same sense of humor. That's probably why I didn't laugh then. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably why mm. <laughs> you're the Letterman in this scenario, just clowning about. That's <laughs> <laughs> what they call me. Mm, yeah. So I am curious, this movie opens and closes with um, elements of a game called gotcha on the campus. Do you have Gotcha over there in the UK? It's kind of tough for me to answer that because firstly, I never completed a degree, although I am working to complete my undergraduate now. Um, so I never really spent much time on a campus, mm-hmm. only in sort of high school. So yeah. I suppose the answer is, to my knowledge, no. And I've asked other people and no one seems to know what I'm talking about. But then I am running up to random people in the street and they're like, who are you? Yeah. Because it's kind of an elaborate form of tag. Uh, it's also referred to as assassin. Uh, it has a couple names, but it okay. So I did go. I was a you know graduate at university. It was not a university thing for me, but in high school it was. It was a big deal. The grade twelve gotcha game, which was our, you know our grad year, and I remember you know everyone signed up, and then you were given a name, and you had to catch that person. Then you would get another name if you caught that person. I unfortunately had the most elusive person for my first person, so I never made it past week one. She was very difficult to catch. Damn you, Rosalind. <laughs> and he's been chasing women ever since. Mm, yeah, unsuccessfully, as <laughs> just as Rosalind. Yeah, I, I remember it was like, she was impossible. Like, she was someone who was like, I'm in the gotcha game. You're never going to find me. <laughs> so, And you weren't allowed to get them um, on school grounds. That was also one of the rules. So whereas here, right. they're chasing each other around on a college campus, shooting paintball guns at each other. With ours, it had to be off-site. So it was like in your free time. Did that not involve an a unhealthy amount of stalking, though? One could say yes. <laughs> so uh, it definitely did. My friend Mark, though, who I've referenced um, going to see Die Another Day with, he actually won the entire thing. And he actually became a PI shortly after. So like it was in the blood. This guy was inspired by the gotcha game. But just for reference, this wasn't with paintballs. This was a physical tag. Yes, this was a physical tag. Yeah. See that I understand more. I mean, I played tag or had as we call it here in primary school or elementary school. I think you guys call it. But uh, we stopped doing that. Yeah. We grew up a bit, Cam. <laughs> well, the paintball gun thing in this movie is interesting because I believe this was the first movie to ever use paintball, which is notable. And Bond would do it two years later at the start of The Living Daylights. But right here, this was an original thing. I Maybe in like 1985 or four, I guess, when they're shooting this, the concept of running around shooting paintball guns on a campus would just completely fly. I don't think that would uh, work out so well nowadays. <laughs> No, I don't. Actually, nowadays it's probably a terrible idea. But yeah. I'm just thinking, I mean, this film borrows a lot from Bond. I don't think Bond necessarily borrowed this idea from Gotcha. <laughs> yes, it did. It took, every, like, the Broccoli family gathered around one night, popped some popcorn, threw on Gotcha, 
and they sat down Timothy Dalton, who didn't really want to be there, but they got him to be there anyway because there was the promise of free popcorn. So sure. he sat down and was watching Gotcha, and they were coming up with ideas for living daylights. That's the way I like to think it happened. I mean, I, I heard that's how they got him to do the role originally, was offering him popcorn. That I is, like that yeah. that's the lure for Timothy Dalton is free popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> the cheapest thing well. to make possible. <laughs> It's not even like buttered or salted or anything. It's just plain popcorn. <laughs> oh my god! So mm. yeah, like uh, that's what sort of grounds this movie to me is the gotcha game is really just something that I think probably was starting around this point in time was probably a big craze on campuses, but has continued on. Although that said, I don't know if they do the gotcha game at my high school anymore. They might not actually. That may be something that's a relic of the past. And I graduated in you know, 1998, so that would have been when we were doing it. 1888 you mean right mm, yeah 18 uh 1898 yeah 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 um well it's weird because like uh, I, as i say i have no experience with a gotcha game but it, you said the rule is you sign up for it it's not like a everyone is just game yeah so maybe it does still go because you would still volunteer to be got maybe yeah there's a consent thing there at least it's not like you just run up to random strangers and smacking them I need to pull a Steve Buscemi and go hang out at the high schools and be like, what up, kids? Is the gotcha game still hip? <laughs> <laughs> Is it still the bee's knees? The cat's meow? <laughs> What's that? <laughs> hey, everyone, look at me. I'm doing the Macarena. <laughs> so. It's the Bartman. Yeah. <laughs> Do the Bartman. <laughs> so this movie... Uh, wasn't a big hit at the box office. It made $10.8 million. Um, although I can't imagine it cost that much either. It's probably the sort of break-even affair where they're like, probably maybe even made a little bit extra. So um, this, it landed at number uh, 76 for the year between Crush Groove. Now, Scott, do you know what Crush Groove is? I think I'm about to find out. It was, um, there was a big breakdancing craze in the era, and there was a few breakdancing movies, and Crush Groove was one of them. There was also Breakin and Breakin 2 Electric Boogaloo. So, yeah. Is that where the Electric Boogaloo thing comes from? Yes. Because oh, I make that joke all the time. Okay, now I know where it actually comes from. Yeah, so okay. Crush Groove beat it by a, just a tiny little bit, but um, Gotcha landed one spot above Missing in Action 2, The Beginning, starring Chuck Norris, a movie I have seen. How is that? Meh. I don't know. I mean, the, <laughs> the missing in action movies are just knockoffs of Rambo. So they're Rambo done on a much smaller budget. It was okay. So you won't be doing any missing in action tours to Upper BC? Unlikely. Uh, I don't think they ever shot in BC, though, to be fair. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. So um, the top three for that year, number one was Out of Africa. Number two was Back to the Future. Number three was Rambo, First Blood Part 2. Rambo's in the air, folks. Uh, and um, this was a big year for spy movies. We've tackled a couple of the entries on here. But uh, at number 10, we had Spies Like Us. Number 13, View to a Kill. Number 52, Falcon and the Snowman. Number 58, Remo Williams. And number 93, The Man with One Red Shoe. 1985, the year that just kept on giving. It's, it, that's one of the reasons I was quite stoked about covering this film. Is because I really enjoy going back to these quirky 80s spy comedies. You know, you've got Cloak and Dagger, Remo. I don't think Remo was really a comedy. It, retrospectively a comedy, perhaps. Uh, Jumping Jack Flash and stuff like that. It's just fun to talk about. Yeah, Remo, I would say, 
was an action movie, but it had fairly strong comedic elements. Like there was a lot of um, goofing around in that movie. Like whenever Fred Ward was acting. Mm, hilarity. So mm. uh, one of the interesting things, though, pop culture wise to do with Gotcha was so the movie comes out in 85, doesn't really perform that well. Um, so I, I don't think it was making a, uh, you know, huge meteor mark on pop culture when it came out. But two years later, Nintendo released Gotcha, the sport, which was a game used with the zapper gun back in the day. So it was a paintball shooting game. And it actually had some traction, like it was actually somewhat popular with Nintendo fans. I never played it. Uh, I I think for the Zapper, I only played Duck Hunt. I don't even know if I ever played another game. Did you? I think I only had, I think I only had Duck Hunt. I seem to recall. Wait, was Duck Hunt on the NES or the Super Nintendo? A regular NES. Oh, no, sorry. I had the Super Nintendo, so I had a few light gun games for that. I never had the original Nintendo. Oh, so you had the Super Scope 16 or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. So the NES Zapper, like, I know they had a handful of games. There was like a, I think a police one or something like that. Uh, But Duck Hunt was the only one we ever played. I don't remember renting any others either. So uh, I never played Gotcha, unfortunately. But but, um, LJN, the toy company, also produced, like, Gotcha Toys. And they were actually um, paintball guns that they released, plastic. You can buy them on eBay pretty cheap, really. Like, Scott, I know you've been going down a rabbit hole of buying, like, Avengers tie-in books and whatever. And I bought the Condor Man comic. I think one of us may have to buy the Gutcha paintball gun online for $30. Well, do they still work as a paintball gun? I have my doubts. I, maybe? Uh, Would they even be using like the type of paintballs that we sell now. I don't even know if it was a different type of um, like paintball back in 19, in the 1980s. I don't know. Maybe that's what we do when we finally get to the Albert Hall together as we uh, reenact <laughs> the Epcos file and then we reenact Gotcha. Because <laughs> like the paint that you're seeing in this movie looks different to me than paintball hits from an actual paintball gun because I did paintball for many years and I owned my own like paintball gun and everything and I would go with friends into the woods or also just to the ranges and stuff like that. Those paintballs like really hurt if you get hit. I don't know that it, it, I don't get the vibe that that's the case in this movie. Oh, you were one of those guys, were you? The one who turned <laughs> up when everyone else was having fun with the normal guns and you got like the machine gun. I it's not a machine gun. It's a pretty standard semi-automatic uh, paintball gun. It does have a flatline barrel on it though that makes the paintballs go quite a long way. <coughs> Loser. <coughs> I know. I know, I know. I also had a laser sight as well. To what end? Oh, I did quite well, Scott. Quite well. (laughs) (laughs) And yet you didn't win Gotcha. No, no. And so that's why I question whether these plastic LJN guns I'm seeing on eBay would work anywhere near as well. That's why I'm just wondering if they operated differently. So just a quick question before we sort of get to the review. With these Gotcha guns and the, the Gotcha game... Were they tied into the film? Like, did Jeff Canoe and the production company that made it get a kickback from this? Or was it just they called it Gotcha and didn't tie into anything at all? Oh, that's an excellent question. I, the director would get nothing out of this. I, I can't imagine any of the toy stuff. Um, because if you look at any of the artwork to do with the game or anything, it doesn't tie to the movie. It's only emphasizing gotcha the sport so i just wonder if it was like a case of like loosely loosely based on you know there's like that cloak and dagger game that's very vaguely based on i think this was even less 
uh, based on the movie. I think it was more like the movie. The movie was part of the craze. The movie had a certain amount of public awareness. It probably kind of helped spawn the game, but the game went in a completely different direction. Like you're not Anthony Edwards in the game running around paintballing people. Right. But and, and the name Gotcha and with the exclamation mark already existed in, in popular culture then. Yeah. Okay, so I, I assume it's more just a case of them using an established brand. Probably, yeah. It's very it's it's considered um something that was somewhat spawned by the movie, but it's also very loose. Fair enough. Okay. Well, this is an interesting film, so I want to get into it, and I kind of want to hear your thoughts first because you were uh, you weren't really around for the eighties. You're not you, you were very young when this film came out, but you know, but you had watched Revenge of the Nerds growing up, so you were very aware of this type of film, and you were a fan of this type of film at that time. So, what did you think of Gotcha? Well, it's funny, you know, you say I wasn't really around in the 80s, but the whole thing was if you were a, a kid in the 90s, you were watching nothing but 80s movies air on TV. So all of those types of movies I was watching, even though somehow Gotcha and Jumpin' Jack Flash passed by my radar, everything else of that era I would have been watching um, for the most part. So this movie, uh, <laughs> it's very much grounded in a place in time, which is the 1980s. There, <laughs> it, I'll say this, like we watched it a couple weeks back before we interviewed Jeff Kanu. Like we actually did the advance research for that interview. And then last night I rewatched this movie. And normally I don't watch things twice for this podcast. I tend to watch them the night before we do the review. And that's that. Uh, this movie, I don't think it's particularly good, but I enjoyed actually going back to watch it in the sense it was like, totally painless for me as a rewatch it has that sort of goofy 80s vibe there's elements about it i really enjoy i think linda fiorentino is like really really strong in this movie it's like a movie star performance in this kind of goofy comedy and she doesn't really um hang around the whole movie and we'll get into that in a few minutes but i feel like the movie suffers in her absence but it has sort of this goofy amiable vibe that i found just kind of fun to watch it has problems. It's not a perfect movie by any stretch, but I think I enjoyed this one more than I enjoyed Jumpin' Jack Flash, and I definitely enjoyed this more than The Man with One Red Shoe. Is this the sort of film I'd want to sit down, you know, with a bucket of popcorn and Timothy Dalton mm. to watch? You know, that's that is the question, and it has that that eighties feel. That, as you say, it, it's it's easy to watch. It's not offensive, and, and my my quick line on my review was an inoffensive. And sometimes fun teen movie romp. Yeah. Like, that's it. Like, it, if you compare it to sort of later teen movies like American Pie, it's nowhere near a shock, shock value or anything like that. It's very inoffensive. It doesn't really push the limits except for a few questionable choices that we'll get to later. But I, I think this film works when it takes itself a bit more serious. Mm -hmm. So stuff at the, like, there's a whole section where they go to East Berlin. And this is before the fall of the Berlin Wall. So it's all, you know, communist owned. DDR stuff over there and that there's actually some tension going on in the film and that's actually really interesting stuff and, and as you say Linda Fiorentino is great in those sequences but then she disappears from the film for a, a good part, portion of it and I think as soon as he gets back home the energy just drops off of the film yeah so it has like a good first two acts and then the last act is just a bit too boring to really pay attention but I, I, I watched it twice myself and I think I could sit down and watch it a third time if I you know had nothing else to pick from like it, it wouldn't offend me to watch again but i also wouldn't choose to watch it again 
Well, when I was saying up front, it feels like a movie that would have been played on TV a lot. I think that's to its benefit. It's a type of movie that like, if it's four o'clock in the afternoon and, you know, I'm, you know, in high school or whatever, late elementary school, and I come home and this is on, I would totally watch it. Like this would just be a movie that's, if you get called away for a few minutes, oh, who cares, whatever, I can, you know, go answer whatever my mom wants, come back and continue watching it. It just has that kind of breezy sort of hangout movie kind of vibe where you can just kind of pop in and out pick up on moments you enjoy but yeah i I agree it's not a movie i'm gonna sit down and really focus my attention on because i don't know that it's rewarded it kind of this movie i found works in fits and starts there's like segments that i think are actually really fun and then there's some that are (laughs) a little up a little painful and not in a problematic way just in a oh that's pretty clunky uh, kind of way and then there's moments that are as you said a little bit of you know dead spots where it's just not a lot of energy but the movie keeps mixing up what it's doing like consistently like it, it's always taking different detours and trying different things it's not even like one genre you can't even say well it's just a spy movie because it's sort of an 80s sex comedy it's sort of an 80s romance it's all sorts of things all piled into one and it's taking them all fairly seriously which I appreciated because there was a lot of sex comedies at this point in time that were like really gross. Like if you revisit them now, you're like, was everyone insane in the eighties? They must've been. Cause what I'm seeing makes no sense here. It's definitely heightened. It's definitely cartoonish, but it doesn't feel like crass or gross in the way a lot of the eighties stuff has aged. Well, I, mm, there are a couple of, Oh, there's a interesting couple choices. Yeah. It's not in your face. It, there's no like, you know, having sex with a pie. It's nothing like that. I know that's nineties, though. That's nineties. So I know. Yeah, yeah. I know. Um, or even you know, Revenge of the Nerds. Yeah, which is you know the, the previous film. There's some really mm-hmm. bizarre and and worrying choices in that film. Whereas this is a bit more tame. And if if you said to me, like you said, you you came home from elementary school, and it was on TV. If I was a parent, I don't think I'd be that worried about you watching it. Yeah, I mean, it's you know you watch a movie like Porky's, for example, from the eighties, and it's like a horror show. You're just like, oh my god, like what was going on? in like 80s sex comedies like it's unbelievable uh this one it okay so like i found a lot of the 80s sex comedies really look down on the female characters like it would treat them like garbage this movie doesn't i think it gives the linda Fiorentino character a lot of agency uh th- again there's problematic elements when any female characters like i like men who are 17 years old and she's clearly supposed to be older and you're like Maybe in the 80s this would fly. Nowadays it wouldn't, but you know what? I, I can look past it. The thing is, the Anthony Edwards character is in university or college or whatever. So, I, I, whatever. Whatever. I'm not offended by anything going on. I don't think this is particularly problematic that a college student would be dating an older woman. But um, you would not have a character say something like that now. But you go back to like other 80s sex comedies, and it would make her character look... They would treat her like garbage through the entire movie. And that would be kind of the whole... like. You know, they're all filtered through the real male lens, those 80s movies. This one is too, but it's a little more respectful. Well, I think that you you jumped onto one of the points I wanted to raise, which is the lead of this film is Anthony Edwards, who, you know, went on to do ER. He's a popular actor. I would have never called him a leading man. Yeah, well, it's funny because he started out doing kind of smaller parts. He was in like Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And then he did Revenge of the Nerds, and he was the co-lead of that movie, and uh, it was like a pretty pretty big hit. And then it's because of that movie he winds up in this film as your lead. It's notable, though, cut to one year later, 
and he's the co-star of um, Top Gun. It's Tom Cruise is very clearly the star of that movie, but Anthony Edwards is a really strong supporting character. So I, I think that's kind of where his strength uh, lies. And look, I think leading actor on a TV show like ER, and I know George Clooney was more the star of that show at that point, but nonetheless, he feels like someone who probably would succeed more as a TV leading character than as a movie lead, at least judging from this film. I, I could buy that. I think... And this is where one of my problems with the film creeps in is that I think Linda Fiorentino's character of Sasha, I think, is actually a stronger character and you're more drawn to want to see her story. But whereas you're watching it through the lens of Anthony Edwards' Jonathan, who is this uh, you know, 17, 18-year-old virgin, <laughs> as uh, Sasha likes to say, you know, nuclear vessels here. It's a very strange accent choice she made, but... Um, and so when she disappears, I'm thinking about what she's doing, not worried about what Jonathan's doing. I don't think you would have had a film with her as lead in 1985 like this. So they, we got what we got. But um, I think that's one of the weaknesses of the film is that you care more about its secondary character than you do the primary. Well, like she walks into this movie and it's just like there is a maturity and a confidence to Linda Fiorentino that you're just not getting with any of the other actors. Um, Anthony Edwards... And it's not just because they're playing younger characters. It's just like in terms of just a performer, Linda Fiorentino feels like a movie star walking into, you know, kind of a B-level um, campus comedy. And you're just like, who, who is this woman? Like this woman, woman is clearly like a movie star. And, you know, Anthony Edwards is nothing against him whatsoever as the lead. I think the problem is his character has not aged well. And <laughs> it's that he's not, uh, as maybe as iffy as some of the male leads of these types of movies from the 80s. But like he's a character who there's a lot of obnoxious traits to. And the movie doesn't really punish him for them. Uh, he does a lot of things in this movie. And <laughs> the final shot of this movie, which we'll touch on in a moment. Um, this is a guy who comes across as just kind of borderline creepy or just kind of weird, socially awkward, but in a way that's entitled. Like he's kind of weird towards people, but then angry at them because they don't respond to the way he approaches them. And that is a thing that exists in the real world, but the movie doesn't seem to really interrogate him for that. He gets more rewarded for it. I just don't think you would have had a, a campus comedy in the 80s that would have interrogated a character like that. It's more, it's far easier just to play him as the hero. Yeah. And, and, and but then this, this film isn't pitching to be an Oscar winning, you know, all-time great film it is a b mid-level comedy it knows what it is at least you don't though even get like kind of a a, a really compelling growth narrative for that character because like if he's a loser at the start of the movie that's fine and it's not like he has a friend manolo in the film played by um zoo garcia who is sort of the more experienced um guy like he's the one who can talk to women he's far more successful and he's played as a fairly normal guy. And I think another movie would have played him as really like douchey, like really douchey as the guy who he's, you know, the lead character's friend, but he's very clearly a creep that's going to get his comeuppance by the end. And here he's actually a pretty supportive friend uh, that I was kind of surprised by just for this era. So like he even comes across as more um, palatable than the Anthony Edwards character who has just a lot of like, like a lot of ugly traits you see in the movie. And I don't, some of the comedy comes from that, I guess, but like, it didn't really work for me. I would have liked if he was maybe someone who was more shy and awkward, who gained confidence by the end versus someone who's like, 
being kind of weird and continues being weird, gets a little bit of a romance. Like he does kind of mellow out a bit when he meets Sasha and whatever, but he's doing a lot of like kind of douchey things even by the end. But I would argue that's his character arc in Revenge of the Nerds. True. And so maybe he just didn't want to copy that over and he wanted to be sort of more of a, a straight line through the film. But, you know, your protagonist, the second you meet him, he's hitting on girls potentially a bit aggressively. He's openly talking about how he wants to have as much sex as possible. Now, you could argue that is being true to people, not just men. You know, people want to have sex, that's fine. But I don't know, when your lead character is talking about just wanting to have sex and going abroad to have sex, it's like, okay, we get it, buddy, but have have something else. Have another layer to you than just, I want to bone. And that's an element of this movie that hasn't particularly aged well. It's very clearly this man or this young guy is rich. Like his parents mm. are very wealthy. We meet them sitting around the luxurious pool. They have a maid. This is another element of 80s movies that is something that is now maybe called into question a little more. It's like it's very much the uh, very entitled white guy who's rich. And he's our underdog. <laughs> <laughs> that male privilege. Let's, uh, let's, let's feel sorry for him, guys. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and he's I just like... There's moments early on where I guess we're supposed to be somewhat sympathetic to him, I guess. But, like, he walks up to these women. He's just like, do you want to go out with me? And it's like, oh, wow. Like, that's just, like, the saddest approach humanly possible. Were you taking notes during those scenes? I was, actually. Furious notes. There was, like, smoke coming <laughs> off the pen. <laughs> Linda, furious Tino? No, it didn't work. <laughs> but we're keeping it in. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Um... Well, okay, I think I'd like to talk about some good bits before I mm-hmm. delve deeper into some of the critiques. So I, I kind of said it in my initial thoughts. I think the whole East Berlin, West Berlin stuff is great. Yeah. They're right in the depth of their romance and you've got the actual tension of going into communist you know, Germany, the, the East Berlin side over the Berlin Wall into the DDR. And then he has to try and escape. And he's, he's being chased by, I think, like, are they Russian spies? Yes, they indicate that there's a, a, a kind of bald guy who's chasing them, the primary villain in the movie. He reminded me a lot of Ronald Lacey, the, who played the villain in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, he has that kind of vibe. But um, yeah, like they're being chased yeah, by Russians throughout. And I, I actually thought there was some really good Hitchcockian suspense going on here. Moments mm-hmm. where the police officer comes up to Anthony Edwards and is just asking information. And He's, you know, in East Berlin, obviously he's completely a fish out of water and you get that sort of threat level. Moments like that I thought were really effective. There's like almost a reality to the story. Mm-hmm. You know, when he's traveling into East Berlin, he's he's really nervous as he's going through Checkpoint Charlie. I think it's meant to be Checkpoint Charlie. And, you know, he, he says, oh, Jesus Christ, something, something, something. And the East Berlin guard's like, did you just curse at me? And he the flop sweat hits him and you're like, oh, if you said that to an East Berlin guard, you, you might disappear. Yeah. There's no coming back. And that reality hits him in that second. And to be fair to Anthony Edwards, he kind of acts it out. Like, it, you sense it. You feel it. Well, I think he's at his best in this movie when he's having those sorts of sequences that are quite tense or even just a comedic moment. Because this is a comedy. The moment where he goes uh, to exit East Berlin and his visa has expired, his one-day visa... And mm-hmm. he's at a window with this woman who says, sorry, you have to renew it. And then she walks over to the next window and acts like she's never seen him before. She's like, what can I help you with? 
moments like that I thought were really funny because he you can get the exasperation on his face. Like he actually really pulls off that comedic moment. So I found, yeah, the kind of the fish out of water stuff in East Berlin was really strong. I actually thought him and Linda Fiorentino had a fair amount of chemistry. I thought just their romance off the bat as kind of um, strange and a uh, movie fantasy-ish as it is in terms of its setup and frankly absurd. Uh, it actually works when you have those two actors together. It, they, they seem like kind of a sweet couple in the movie where, again, it could have been portrayed very differently. I think a lot of late teenage boys would love a, a model or an actor to come walking up to him in a French cafe and say, hey, I like guys that can't grow facial hair. Or, hey, I like guys that wear Limp biscuit shirts. And you'd be like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> I knew it would work eventually. <laughs> <laughs> Someone noticed me. Yeah, like, it's it's the type of moment that, like, again, it's very sitcomish. Like, there's no reality to this whole uh, meeting of him and Linda Fiorentino or to their whole journey into East Berlin. But I thought the movie sold it. Like, it grounded it in a reality that I could work with and not a, a realistic reality, more as in a movie reality that it didn't feel as um, ridiculous or eye rolling as a lot of those kind of, as I like to refer to them, 80s uh, fairy tale movies. You said something just then and, and earlier in the episode that really reminded me of the Taken films. Okay. Because the Taken films are this sort of, I don't know, dad is perfect, this dad fantasies, whereas this is a this is just a teen fantasy, right? This is a yeah. teenage boy's fantasy, going abroad, getting picked up by someone that's older than them and, I don't know, losing his virginity. <laughs> and not only that, but, you know... Uh, the woman uh, who, you know, he meets Sasha, Linda Fiorentino's character, is revealed later to be a CIA agent who was using him to smuggle uh, film out of East Berlin. And at the end, we meet her. She's working for the CIA. Her name is actually Cheryl Brewster. She's from Pittsburgh. She doesn't have the Czechoslovakian accent or anything. And we get the sense at the end of this movie that they are going to continue dating and being a couple. And you're like, bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> this relationship ain't lasting, dude. <laughs> that that Cheryl Brewster's got like a husband and two kids and a dog somewhere in in, in wherever she's from Pittsburgh. Like she is a nine to five worker, I think. That is, she's not out to have a long term relationship with eighteen year old Anthony Edwards. Eighteen year old, like first year in college or university. Yeah, uh, I don't think so. This woman has a very professional job that's sending her all over the world on CIA missions. Uh huh. Sure. Again, eighties fantasy. Also, she's got to be quite aware if she's working for a government agency. She's obviously an adult and she's having <laughs> entering into a relationship with a teenage boy that wouldn't would raise a few eyebrows with, you know, the law. Because isn't the age of consent 21 in America? Uh, oh, God, don't ask me this. I think it's no, I think it's 18. It's 21 for drinking. 21 is drinking. Well, that's arse backwards, but whatever. Yeah, I, I I don't know. But I believe it would be 18 in, in America. And he was 18, which is emphasized in the movie. So, Okay. So, okay, sorry, Americans. There, there was no breaking of laws here. Just, you know, no. morality laws. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, what, four-year difference? Like, whoop-de-doo. <laughs> I don't know. It, it, he still feels like a kid to me. Does he not feel like a kid to you? Well, I, I think it's offset by the fact that Anthony Edwards was like 23 at the time they shot this. It's very much the uh, full-grown adult playing a teenager kind of thing that was such a... Well, it's still popular. This has not gone away. But Linda Fiorentino, I believe, was four years older than him when they shot this. So she does look a little bit older. But 
I'm not buying this dude as an 18-year-old. Look, I've seen 18-year-olds nowadays. Walk the street, look at an 18-year-old. They look like small children. If you did this movie now with an actual 18-year-old, it might look weirder. But in this case, I, it, Anthony Edwards looks like he's like approaching 30 to me in this movie. I mean, he, he's not got any hair now. So maybe he was wearing a toupee at this point. You know, Maybe. Maybe he was going full Connery and just wearing that toupee. I'm wearing the same one right now. <laughs> It's not believable, just like Connery's. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, okay, well, another bit I liked was Zitadel. Mm. When he, he goes to meet the other spy, I believe. It's not really explained who she is. And then she's killed, and he has to run away from the, the Russian spies to get out of the area. And, and he actually, we speak to the director about filming this scene as well. They actually filmed it at the Zitadel, in, just outside of Berlin. And he actually does jump into the water. That is actually Anthony Edwards making that uh, practical, you know, stunt. That's great. Yeah, really effective sequence. Again, like when they're doing the more Hitchcockian suspense stuff, this works. And when that uh, agent he meets with, who's, uh, I'm not sure who she's actually working for. I'm guessing CIA in that scene because the fact that the bad guys kill her. And, and she's working with Linda Florentino, so you would assume it's the same organization. Well, is she or is she just lying about that? I don't know. I think that's one of the problems we'll probably get into it is plotting. But sure, uh, yeah. sure. I mean, I, I can I go know. along with it. But just the moment where she gets shot by the sniper and dies right in Anthony Edwards' sort of arms, there, it reminded me a lot of North by Northwest, the scene where the guy gets stabbed in the back when Cary Grant is, um, you know, just at the start of him being on the run. So it has these sort of Hitchcockian elements, and I think they're done well. It doesn't feel like I have to kind of bend over backwards to be nice like well they tried it and it was okay i actually think they do those sort of suspense sequences fairly well like they're effective i i have always maintained of course that north by northwest would be improved with more strudel Mm, of course of course yeah i mean any movie would be yeah anyone's life strudel get it in you why did the living daylights not have a whole strudel scene well he was too busy eating popcorn no true enough true enough uh, no. Something else I actually really enjoyed in this movie, a moment we talked to the director about, though, is the band The Cult, who, uh, Cult with a K, who, because um, there's actually a band called The Cult with a C, so uh, to differentiate there, they are sort of a new wave goth kind of band that Anthony Edwards runs into, and they help him get through the border and, uh, you know, to safety, basically. And these characters in a different movie would have been treated, again, as like characters to ridicule the same way that like a lot of the kind of sex comedy elements would be in a different movie. Whereas here, the band are really lovable. They're funny. They're goofy. They're asking, you know, if he's ever met Joan Collins, if he's ever met Bo Derek, what weird celebrities to be throwing out. I guess they were sort of 80s sex symbols at the time, but in terms of aging the movie, they definitely feel funny in a way now because it's just kind of these obscure somewhat, uh, you know, figures from the past but and i guess you and i scott have actually um seen joan collins live in our lives that's that's very true and we did love it we did we loved it we loved it we loved it we loved it (laughs) so i thought they were just a ton of fun like it had a certain like energy to those scenes they were funny just because of their personalities not because the movie was dunking on them and i would totally watch a whole movie about this band just touring around europe I do if I go that far. I would. I, I, I sign me up. I was, <laughs> I was on that ride with you until you said that. I'm jumping <laughs> out the van. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> the only other thing I would point out, something I liked, is the spy plot. 
itself. As I said, like the spy scenes work, but as an overall spy plot, I think it's actually quite uh, not too heavy, not too intricate, easy enough to follow. And something I always talk about when we do these 80s comedies is, is the spy plot any good? You look at like Cloak and Dagger, I really enjoyed. Jumping Jack Flash was a bit loose. The Man with One Red Shoe, I don't think I can even remember what the plot for that one is, except for Tom Hanks blowing bubbles. It was very complicated. Yeah, so this one is 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 pretty simple. It's just a pick up and 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 try and get this this roll of film back to America. Though for people who know a little bit about, about film, if you take thirty five millimeter and drop it into water when it's undeveloped, you're going to ruin it. I used to work in a photo lab, so that was a silly choice. Uh, but you know, we'll take the reality out of it. Uh, I I thought the spy stuff was great actually. Well, they keep it simple, right? It's just a roll of film. And they can just work with the personalities of the characters because it's what Linda Fiorentino has to go through and what he has to go through to, you know, basically get this out. And we're just following along with them. It's the old MacGuffin thing. We don't really care what's on the film. And it has, I think, consequences that ground it, that make the spy plot work. You know, there's a scene where we are cutting back and forth between Anthony Edwards and um, Sasha as, uh, as they're being interrogated, right? Him trying to leave East Berlin where he's being strip searched and everything. And we see the vulnerability he's going through and just how terrified he is. And then we see the same thing with her being interrogated by the Russian agents. And it's, again, like they're both looking very vulnerable and scared. And there's an element of danger to it that we're going to talk about 80 spy comedies. In addition to the two you mentioned, Jumpin' Jack Flash and Man with One Red Shoe, uh, that don't put the stakes on the situation. They are just kind of playing it for a lark. The characters aren't really in danger, whereas you get the sense they're genuinely scared or feeling very vulnerable here. Yeah, and and this is, I think, one of the bits I liked about the film. But I think that moves us on beautifully to maybe some of the critiques. I'll say just one last thing I found fun was the parents. I thought that um, Alex Rocco and Marla Adams were actually really fun. They're played in the way that 80s parents were in these types of comedies where they're like space aliens. Like these people have never <laughs> been young. They've never had any sort of normal life. But they just have a weirdness to them that I just found a lot of fun. And Alex Rocco, for the people who don't know, you know, character actor who worked a lot over, you know, his life. But um, he's the voice of the studio president in The Simpsons, Roger Myers uh, Jr., I guess. So he's popped up throughout the run of The Simpsons quite often. And uh, I always enjoyed his voice. And he's fun to see here just playing this dad who's clueless. You know, he thinks Anthony Edwards is on drugs, as every parent did in the 80s. Every kid was accused of being on drugs in 80s movies. Yeah, the parents didn't really jump out to me too much, I have to admit. But I I did laugh when they did try to get him into the uh, drug program, which I assume your parents tried to do for you as well. Many times, many, many times. Um, I just also love the father's obsession with his Nikon camera. That's like a bit of product placement. They're very heavy on the Nikon advertising, but it made it funny because the dad was so obsessed over the Nikon camera. To be fair, I didn't actually notice that was product placement. So that was actually pretty well done. Yeah, there you go. They made a joke of it. Unlike the Diet Pepsi can that the uh, girl is holding in the early sections of the movie and keeps turning the can to face the camera. I didn't get that. So what, she's purposely moving it to be seen? Yeah, like, they're always framing it so the can always says Diet Pepsi on the can, yeah. Hmm. For a film that didn't make any money, that's two different branding things. That's a lot. Probably paid for the movie. This movie probably did eke out a profit. Hmm, probably. Well, um, we have sort of covered a few of my critiques, but I did just want to maybe tuck in a little bit more to Linda Fiorentino's character and sort of what I feel should have been the the A story. Mm-hmm. 
the conceit is obviously Anthony Edwards goes on holiday and meets Linda Fiorentino's character, and that's where the love affair starts, and then he gets involved in the spy plot. But as soon as he sort of gets the film and she's captured by the Russian spies, Linda Fiorentino disappears for 30 minutes? Yeah, about that. Yeah, and and I, that's where the film just completely loses this energy for me. Mm-hmm. And that's a shame because you, I want to see more of her. Although all it turns out she's doing, she's hanging out in some offices in, in Los Angeles. Yeah. Again, if you built this whole movie around Linda Fiorentino, I don't know really know how you would do that because then you have your point of view character is like seducing a 17 or 18 year old. And you're like, wait, I'm having trouble getting on board with this. Like there is the fantasy element. You just really can't, um, <laughs> you can't cross those lines. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but just in terms of her character, I would totally watch like a spy movie just starring Linda Fiorentino. Uh, I think that would be fantastic. Um, but you are right. Like she brings an energy to this movie that it, it raises the movie. Like once she walks onto the scene, the movie gets better. And it's better when it's her and Anthony Edwards opposite each other, just acting off one another. When it just leaves Anthony Edwards on his own to do everything and just talk to himself a lot and kind of run through the, you know, the beats of a spy plot, it begins to kind of just unravel in terms of its tension, in terms of its interest level. Like it's those two together that matter and why we care about the movie. Yeah, like his whole hunt to like get in contact with the FBI and the CIA takes forever in my book. And I don't really care because I'm surprised he does. Well, yeah, like the movie's not really about an extensive um, spy plot, really. Like it does those elements reasonably well, as we said, especially when they're in East Berlin. But like it's more of a some, you know, coming of age story for his character. So like we care more about seeing how that relationship with Linda Fiorentino's character is going to evolve through the movie we don't care as much about the details as to who's going to get the film how do we set it up with someone you know in america how do we meet with the cia how do we twist it on that like i I enjoyed the shootout at the end where he's taking on all the russian agents on the campus and they're bringing back the whole gotcha concept i thought that was fun it was funny though i made a note that you know we have a sort of teen comedy here where the characters running around darting people to be, you know, knock them out unconscious. Whereas Cloak and Dagger, the children's film, he's gunning people down with a real gun just a year earlier. <laughs> <laughs> Running into oncoming traffic and, you know, far more reckless abandon. Yeah, I found those types of moments had more just imagination and invention to them. The scenes on the campus and kind of the set piece stuff versus the actual, the shoe leather of walking from plot point to plot point to set up the whole finale. I will point out we had a literal Chekhov's gun in this film we did indeed yeah uh the tranquilizer gun from the like the third scene where he declares to a whole classroom of people he wishes to have sex uh that, that that did actually make me laugh despite it being a bit cringy now that poor tiger that tiger did not sign up to be shot with a dart he was not having fun on that day on set no he was not and this movie has a thing for pop culture references because you have the teacher saying go ahead make my day when he shoots the tiger obviously dirty harry um, there's a few James Bond references, pretty on the nose ones that anyone would spot. But um, there's also like the moment at the end where Manolo gets a little bit of action at the end where he, him and his gang, because they establish that his character has connections to a street gang, which feels a very 80s decision that hasn't aged particularly well uh, because he is, you know, a Latino character and yeah okay but he has a moment where they capture the cia people 
and he says like we don't know no stinking badges which is a reference to this um, treasure of the sierra madre the humphrey bogart movie from the 40s so um again fun little references but sometimes used uh, in questionable moments uh, darting a tiger um latino street gangs things like that I, i've only heard the, that noise that the tiger made one other time in my life and that is after you edit my talking on episodes <laughs> No, I dart myself when I'm done that. <laughs> I need the sweet release. That explains how they sound. <laughs> um, well, yeah, it's, the, the James Bond stuff's quite interesting, actually. This film does have a few mm-hmm. connections, apart from obviously the, the director that we'll, we'll get to later in the week. But, you know, he walks around saying, like, more Jonathan Moore. They referenced James Bond earlier on. And there's another thing as well. Some of the posters for this film reference james bond films mm-hmm. yeah um th- there's one in particular that has a shot I- i'm guessing it's not actually linda fiorentino's legs that he's standing in between i can't remember what bond film that's riffing off of it's one of the roger Moore. oh ones. it's uh for your eyes only for your eyes only yeah I'll-, I'll put a comparison up during the week of the two posters together but they they are leaning into the spy stuff a little bit they know what they're doing if you're making an 80s spy movie you have to especially like a teen oriented one you want to call back to those really iconic James Bond images. Um, there's another movie on our list to cover in the future called If Looks Could Kill that does kind of the same thing as this movie. And it was done in 91. I'm looking forward to covering that one because that was an, that one was a staple of my young years. I saw that many a times. So I'm curious how it holds up. My guess is horribly. But nonetheless, also plays really strong into the James Bond imagery. Have you got anything you want to bring up critique-wise? Yeah, there is something, Scott. It's the final shot of the movie. Why did they not cut that out? It's unbelievable. So we get this scene early on where Anthony Edwards is being just, he's running around shooting, you know, other people with paintballs and whatever. And he sprays paint on this girl in a sweater and she gets annoyed, um, probably rightfully so. And he's pretty annoyed at him. And he's like, well, do you want to go out with me? And, you know, she's not impressed. Is that, is that your coming on voice? Is that, that, is, that what you that use is. in the bars? Yeah, yeah. that is. Yeah, yeah. They're like, can you speak up? I'm like, no. (laughs) So he throws that line and she's, of course, just like, no, like, F you. Like, you sprayed paint on me and gives him the finger. And um, frankly, my sympathy was with this girl. Like, I know she's played up to be like, isn't she the worst? Like, isn't this a total ice queen on the campus? Which I'm sure was how it would be interpreted in 1985. But now you're like, no, he's kind of an asshole, actually. (laughs) And he's, you know, there's many scenes in the movie where that comes across. And the final shot of the movie, I think it's inexplicable because it has a scene where it's him and Sasha walking away, or I guess um, Cheryl walking away at the end, kind of a happily ever after. And you're like, okay, cool. This character's maybe grown a little bit, I guess. I don't know. It's a little hazy there, but maybe I'm willing to go along with it. They have a relationship. That's a nice kind of 80s fairy tale ending. And then we get to a moment that feels like it should have been a deleted scene where it's back on the campus and he runs into that girl again. And the final shot of the movie is literally a close-up of her butt as he shoots her in the butt with a tranquilizer dart. And he goes like, gotcha. And it's like, wow. Wow. But the scene actually that precedes it is him breaking the fourth wall, looking at the the the, the viewer, which I, I didn't really understand why they did that. I thought that was actually a little funny, just the idea that at the very end, he kind of gives the sly look. I, I would have appreciated it more if it had played into a spy scenario moment at the very end, like tease that he has another mission or something, and he looks at the camera. That could have been fun. That's that's better. 
if you have the spy thing, that makes way more sense. But just doing it, no reason whatsoever, jumped out at me. But then, yeah, following up with tranquilizing this, this poor girl, who has every right to be a bit miffed at him for ruining a nice jumper, for a game I don't even think she signed up for. She wasn't part of the gotcha game. He just accidentally shot her instead of someone else. She is not in the gotcha guild. No. <laughs> she she does not wish to be gotched. No. Got it? Yeah. Um, and so, and then there's a the question of what does he intend to do with her after he's tranquilized her? I don't, I don't know. But this this moment to me falls more into what I was saying earlier, whereas like there's a level of crassness that you don't really get in this movie in terms of the sex comedy politics that is in a lot of 80s movies very strong. You know, look, I'm not defending kind of the behavior of him and Manolo on their vacation and everything, but it's it's portrayed somewhat less gross than in other 80s movies like it, it feels like downright respectable in terms of 80s sex comedies versus what you would be seeing otherwise this moment though at the end to me falls into that category where you're like that is the mean-spiritedness i actually expect from these 80s movies more so it's that sort of frat boy behavior that you would expect out of it i did have a question about this and sort of maybe the film as a whole because i couldn't find it online do you know what the rating for this film was in the states yeah, it was a PG-13. And this is actually notably very early into the PG-13 rating being a thing. It comes around in 84, um, right after the release of Gremlins and Temple of Doom, because those movies were incredibly dark and they were given PG ratings. And so there was a lot of parents very upset. And so that spawned the PG-13. And I think the first PG-13 was Red Dawn. And this one would have been pretty shortly after. So this is very early in that ratings run. So PG-13, to help me out here, you can only watch it if you're over the age of 13 and you have to have parental uh, permission or is it under 13 if you have parents there? So it's, I feel like it's more of a 13 is the recommended age, but I don't think I ever had a problem when I was a kid going to see movies that were PG-13 when I was under 13. I remember going to see Wayne's World when I was like 11 or 12 by my, you know, with my friend or whatever. Mm. Okay. It's more recommended than enforced. R ratings are enforced. PG 13s aren't. Because there's scenes that I feel that they could have played far more crass. You know, like the first time he has sex with Linda Fiorentino's character in a, in a poorer comedy, I could see him like, uh, this might be a bit gross for listeners, but like, I don't know, fumbling around with a condom or something like that you know, blowing it up or something. Doesn't know how to use it because he's an idiot. I can see that sort of comedy coming in, but they don't do that. They don't go for the easy laugh. So that's why this scene jumps out so much because it it seems below this film, which isn't saying a lot because this film is not, you know, it's not winning awards, but it, it seems like it's a lower form of comedy. Well, it's, yeah. And the thing is, you know, you look at the Sasha characters throughout in like, I think we're more... Um, at least now we respond more to just her maturity and handling of scenes. Like we, I think our sympathies lie more with her nowadays when we see this movie. Um, but like that moment is playing into kind of the worst aspects of the Anthony Edwards character that look, I don't want this scene in the movie period, but if it had happened at the start of the movie and we saw he grew beyond this, you would at least make some sense of it. But happening at the very end is not good. And I know it's just supposed to be a cheap gag to send the audience out laughing, but it has not aged well. I almost would change, uh, it wouldn't really save it, it just sprung to my mind. I would almost change the uh, fourth wall break to after that. Okay. So he comes back in, shoots her, looks at the screen and goes, gotcha. Sure. In terms of constructing a comedy moment for an 80s movie and for an audience that's watching it in 1985, 
that might have worked better because it is a really weird freeze frame too it's yeah like on her butt yeah it's clunky what her butt well the the, the, I'm kidding. the filmmaking i'm kidding going i'm on. kidding i'm kidding <laughs> <laughs> you started sweating there sorry buddy <laughs> oh. i was like anthony edwards in east berlin <laughs> like, oh my god <laughs> where's my visa where's my visa um okay well the only other thing i had to really bring up was the soundtrack to this film mm. because firstly it's got some great songs on the soundtrack you got like frankie goes to hollywood relax two tribes by pet shop boys you know, some top-notch songs i'm surprised they could afford this I, I just think this is the norm though in this era because like you watch a lot of these 80s movies and they have all these hits and i don't remember the date um when mtv launched but it feels like it's around this era so you probably want that kind of youth appeal in terms of your music in the movie so yeah there's like a couple it's interesting because there are a couple songs you're like oh i know this song um there's also the song wouldn't it be good that pops up i'm like oh i of course know that song but then there's like others where you're like, I have no idea what this is. It's always interesting when you watch an 80s movie, how like they'll have their hits. And then there was ones that maybe they were trying to make hits that just went nowhere. So you get an interesting mix here. Well, speaking of hits that went nowhere. Yeah. Nice, nice segue there. I, I enjoyed that. This song has its own title track. And I want to talk about it. But I think what we'll do first is just play you a quick clip from the song because, well, it's interesting. Cam, roll it. Rolling. So yeah, that was Gotcha by Theresa Bazaar. Now, she is still a musician. Um, you can't find this song on Spotify or anything like that, strangely enough. It doesn't really exist apart from YouTube. I would urge people to go have a listen to the full song because it's a bit of an earworm. It actually does quite a good job of sticking in your head. But the lyrics, I think, must have been written by the people who did the script because there's some weird choices. I mean, your eyes pierce my heart. Let's play spies in the dark. Okay. <laughs> I I want you now more than ever, boy. And it's not my style to wait for long. It doesn't even rhyme. Yeah. Well, uh, it all works like magic, though, in the melody. Yeah. And then the, the bit that makes me laugh, really, is the chorus. Because it goes like, it's like, gotcha, gotcha where I want ya, da 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 but then in the second part of the chorus, instead of doing a funny line after gotcha, it just goes, gotcha, 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 gotcha. <laughs> it was like the demo version. <laughs> yeah, they're just sort of mumbling words out like I usually do, to be fair. But to a song, and I just thought they'd just given up writing lyrics, but then they repeat the chorus three more times in the song. It is infectious. You hear this song, it's 80s cheese at its finest, and you can't get it out of your head. So I am in favor of this song. It gives the movie a personality that maybe it wouldn't have without. Like, I think that song is, that song is pretty strong. And strong in a very 80s cheese way, I should say. I'm surprised it didn't do better because it actually has a nice hook, except for the, the mumbling. But um, it's nice to see, because uh, it's kind of Bondy in its own little way, having a song named after the film. You, you, you do get that a lot in the 80s, but it's definitely a, 
it's kind of a Bond, Bond trope, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's better than maybe even a couple Bond songs, so I'm yeah. down with it. Yeah, I, I take this over Die Another Day. The writing's on the wall. Oh, another way to die. Mm, yeah, there's a few. There's a few poor ones. So I'll take Gotcha over at least a couple. And the only other one I wanted to mention was a song called "Never Too Late for Love," mm. uh, which is played during a, a sexy montage between the two of them. Uh, it's by a person called Geoffrey. I believe it's an original song for the film. Not as catchy as Gotcha, but it, it's it's pure cheese. It's like, it's never too late for love. <laughs> Full on 80s. And it just reminded me so much of um, Team America, World Police. Yeah. Like that, like the the complete stupid, the irony of the song. So it's like, what would you do if you give up your dream for freedom? Like that sort of just complete tongue-in-cheek nonsense. But this film isn't being tongue-in-cheek. It's completely earnest in trying to use this song. And so you sit there going, what is this? Was there any saxophone in the song? I don't remember. Yes, there was. Hells yeah. Okay. It's exactly how you would picture an 80s ballad to go. Yeah. I, I was curious, what did you think of the score in this movie? Did you notice there was a score? I think I, I I seem to recall a couple of instrumental bits. We don't usually talk about the score this much, but and like the music, but it just jumps out in this film. And I can't say I remember a particular like gotcha tune apart from the actual title track. Yeah, like to me it was invisible or inaudible, I suppose. Uh, I never picked up on the score at all. And it's just notable because it was done by Bill Conti, who did the Rocky movies. He did the Karate Kid. Uh, he did... Um, uh, I think it was for your eyes only. Like he was a pretty notable composer, and it's just weird that I see his name at the start of the movie for my second watch, and I'm like, oh, I didn't remember that Bill Conti did the score. I'll have to pay attention, and I didn't pick up on a single thing he did in this movie. They were like, we've got Bill Conti. Nah, it's never too late for love. Let's play that instead. I'll take it. Honestly, given the score for for your eyes only, I'll take it. Mm. All right. I think before we wrap up and tackle the knock list, Cam, do you have any sort of final notes on the film? Yeah, I've got a f- couple things I'll bring up. Uh, there's a fast motion taxi ride in this movie, and I think it's really weird. You and I covered the um, Thunderball film last week, and that movie has the whole fast motion boat stuff at the end and some fight scenes. This taxi ride that's done in fast motion is brutal, where they've sped up the film, and it just it's so awkward. It doesn't play as funny, and it ends with like Anthony Edwards and um, and Zoo Garcia like in fast motion getting out of the car and you're like this looks clunky this is a relic of the 80s that should have stayed in the 80s and well i guess it did stay in the 80s but it's not good to revisit yeah i i wrote that down in my notes actually as well i didn't understand why they chose to do that was that just a trope in some 80s comedies or something to have the sped up action well like this goes back to like benny hill stuff doesn't it where it's like benny hill running around to the fast motion music but like um it's something that just in execution here did not work and especially considering the movie doesn't do that anywhere else. It's just like this weird moment, this non sequitur. Um, something else I'll bring up that was sort of a trope of the era that this movie largely sidesteps is like gay panic jokes. This movie actually doesn't really do them, but you do have that weird moment where there's the most aggressive strip club promoter ever who's like dragging people in off the street to his strip club, it seems, and like yells a slur at Anthony Edwards. That's like the one moment in the movie that I was like, ah. Oh, Damn, I thought we'd make it through an 80s movie without one, but there is one. So, yeah. Yeah, that that's a bumpy part. I just think that was part of the unfortunate vernacular of the time. I don't think any thought was put into it being particularly offensive, but watching it in 2021, 
Not as great. Yeah. Um, I did have a couple of uh, uh, quick notes I've just found. Firstly, I want to talk about my pencil. Mm. Because it's pretty big. But did you ever actually figure out what it was in French? No. No. Well, I, I translated it properly. And so I, I want to tell you how big my pencil is. Oh, thank you. I, I really appreciate this. Yeah, it's also yellow, uh, just so you're aware. But in French, it's uh, mon crayon et grand échoue. Oh, okay. My pencil is yellow and big. Well, big and yellow. Because he stumbles over that line throughout the movie, and that's a running joke. But I, I kind of like that bit with the snooty waiter, where the waiter's like, well, good for you. <laughs> 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 that, made me, that made me laugh. I did make me laugh. That is the whole like typical tourist in in a foreign country getting the language terribly wrong. And you also get he he mispronounced Pernod or Pernod if you're in France, which is if anyone don't know what that was in the film, it's like a aniseed liqueur that you would mix with something. So he has it with water, which is probably the way to take it because by itself it's very just like hitching the back of your throat. Not very nice drink. It's more of a mixer. Do you think you know people in Europe would watch this movie? And see it as a confirmation of sort of the um, ugly tourist stereotype. Because the movie really plays into that with his character. And I'm not sure it was like knowingly. I think it would definitely reinforce what they think. I've been to France enough times to know they're not big fans of tourists as it is. So yeah. having a, a blustering American come in to butcher their language. I can see why they get a bit frosty. That's mm. the way it does. Mm, yeah. Um, and I have one more thing. It was more of a question for you. Because of your accent problems. Of course. It's it's well noted on the podcast. Cam cannot do accents and cannot tell if people have good or bad accents. It has right. to be awfully, awfully bad, like, you know, uh, Keanu Reeves in, in Dracula. Yeah. Um, what did you think of Fiorentino's accent? Well, it sounded to me like more of a movie accent. Like, that's how you would portray someone who has that accent in a movie. Like, I feel like I've heard this accent in several films. Like, it doesn't sound to me light years away from like Xenia on a top, for example. Um, I, I don't really know if it's highly accurate, but it worked for me in terms of the character in the movie. Yeah, this is actually one I was going to put a bit of praise into, really. It's not, it, I don't think it's particularly authentic to, you know, check accents or anything like that. But it, it also didn't seem completely outlandish. I mean, the whole like nuclear vessels joke that kept on going through my head did jump out, which is another eighties film, um, mm. and you know, maybe a bit silly, you know, virgins and stuff. Or maybe that is how it would be pronounced. But I think, I think Linda handled it quite well. Mm -hmm. um, there, there was not a lot of comedy to her accent. I felt like maybe they were aiming for a bit of comedy with the like the virgins of the world, but um, it, it didn't make me sort of jump out of my skin hearing it. It was fine. Yeah, well, the thing about Linda Fiorentino is I don't really know that she's, like, uh, that much of a comedian. When I'm thinking of, like, her movie roles, it's she's much better at grounding characters. Like, I always buy her as a character, and I think the thing is, you don't look at her just coming on the screen just, like, tossing punchlines. You just buy into her as a character. So that, to me, is why I kind of... It all worked for me. And I would say this for a lot of her performances, even Men in Black as well, where it's it's more of a dry sense of humor, but... I completely buy her as that morgue, you know, attendant. Mm. Well, here's a, maybe a question to wrap us up. Comparing our two Linda Fiorentino experiences so far, what's your favorite performance? Oh, that is go. Cool. Okay, so like, I feel like 
this one may have the edge because you look at what she's working with. She is elevating the movie around her. Men in Black, you got Tommy Lee Jones, you got Will Smith, you got Rip Torn, you've got a lot of um you've got a lot of stars in that movie. Um and a lot of high caliber actors and she is meeting them on every level. But whereas here I look at this project and like, you know, it's kind of a it's kind of a goofy B movie and I feel like she's elevating the movie around her. And this is early 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 in her career so you're seeing how much talent she has and i just want to say i think it's a real bummer we don't get to see her in movies much anymore i would like to see her acting more because i think she's fantastic you watch the movie the last seduction and like what a performance but um yeah i I think i would maybe say here just because of the energy she gives this movie well i i said earlier on i wish i'd seen more of her in this film i don't think i said that at the end of men in black i wish i'd seen her in the second film i wish we'd had a follow-up to her character instead of that you know tossed off line and yeah there's a whole legacy of of her career and people talking about how she is to work with maybe that's led to her not working as much now but in in this performance i wish i had seen more of her yeah same here like she's she Mm. is the reason to watch this movie really yeah I think she is the, much as Anthony Edwards has gone on to have a good career as well, I think she is the one who comes out of it looking like a movie star. Yeah. And, you know, the same year she does Martin Scorsese's After Hours, watch that movie too. Like, she's incredible in that. So, definitely. Great era for Fiorentino fans. Oh, and one other final note, just for people who watch a bit of TV. I I don't know if there's any connection here, but I watch a lot of um, Dan Harmon's Community, the, the comedy show. And they have several episodes of they have like on campus paintball tournaments. Mm-hmm, yeah. And I just wondered if there was any connection there at all. I but then you're telling me that a lot of people in North America did play gotcha. So maybe it's just he had experiences of that in college and brought that into writing community. I don't know if there's any connection between the film or not. Yeah, I don't really know, honestly. Um hmm. maybe he was watching it with Timothy Dalton at the time. Sharing a tub of popcorn. Yeah. Hmm. I'd like to think that would be nice. But um, <laughs> let, let, let's move mosey on over to the knock list. Now, you know, this is, uh, I don't know, our fifth 80s comedy. Have any of them made it so far? Oh, my God. Is it our fifth? I can think of Man with One Red Shoe and I can think of Jumpin' Jack Flash. Was there a Cloak and Dagger, I guess? Was there anything else? Remo Williams. Oh, right. Remo. Yes, of course. Oh, Remo. Hmm. Uh, I think they're all misses. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, here you go. <laughs> Is Gotcha making the knock list, Cam? No. Um, <laughs> you know, Gotcha's... Wah, wah. Like, this isn't that strong a film. It's a movie that's sort of... It's breezy. I think I can totally understand the cult fandom around it. It makes sense to me. I know there's, like, I think a really, um, you know, high-quality edition that was put out on Blu-ray. I don't own it. I just um, had to watch it in other ways. But... Um, it's a movie that, like, I understand that there's probably a fandom that supports it, but I, I don't think this is a great spy film. It has fun Hitchcockian elements. It's got, again, as as we've said over and over again, Fiorentino's performance, which is so strong, but no, no, this is not an all-time great spy film. No, I'd beat myself up if it made up made the list of some of these other ones that we've had, but not to say it's bad. I think it falls into that category of one of those ones that if someone asked me, I'd say, ah, it's it's funny. It's got some interesting moments. Check it out. It's a breezy hour and 40 minutes, but is it one of the best spy films of all time? No, no, no. Yeah, agreed. It looks like Gotcha is not making the knock list. And as such, the dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. Cam, what are we doing next week? 
We are tackling Taken 3. We are wrapping up the Brian Mills trilogy. We are not covering the Taken TV show that ran for a short period of time at any point in the future of this podcast, but we are tackling Taken 3. Well, I think the first two didn't make the knock list, so hopefully the third one can really take our breath away. I'm not holding my breath. <laughs> well, there you go, folks. I, I know Taken 3 has that uh, often meme scene of him jumping over the fence with about 30,000 cuts, so I'm looking forward to talking about that at nauseam. But your mission, should you choose to accept it, is, of course, to watch Taken 3 and join us next week. Now, of course, gotcha! didn't make the knock list and if you want to find out more about the films that didn't didn't make the knock list you can find that on letterbox.com slash spy hards we are of course a proud member of Podbreed and quite the thing media podcast networks and don't forget to follow us discreetly on social media at spy hards that's s-p-y-h-a-r-d-s on facebook twitter and instagram but until next week listeners meet me at the cafe frederick Strasser. Do you want to go out with me? Gotcha!